Hurry, hurry, step this way. The strangest sights on the island. Bricks from the four corners of the world. What you nickels, one dime, a tenth part of a dollar. We've got the show if you've got the dime. It's just starting. So hurry, hurry, look them over the lady without a head. There are thin ones, there are fat ones. They're all inside. Zip and pip the pin-headed people. A sample of the marvelous freaks you'll see for the price of a small thin dime. You get the whole show now if you hurry, hurry, hurry. So those are the sounds of the sideshow. Uh, a sideshow was a fixture uh, in American entertainment, certainly for the first half of the 20th, 20th century, uh, actually probably a little bit longer than that. And there was that notion that you were going to pay to look at people who were different from you, and uh, you were more or less free to react as you chose. And then, as I think you can probably guess with your modern sensibilities, there came a point uh, where the public sentiment turned against this idea. But we're going to take you a little bit deeper into the sideshow and maybe behind the scenes of the sideshow and and get you to sort of look at it a different way. Towards the end of the show, you'll hear a story of how very possibly somewhere around 6,000 or more premature babies may have been saved by being in sideshows. I know that sounds completely crazy. We'll explain it all to you when we get there. Right now, uh, we're going to talk to Bill Griffith, who's been on the show many times, a creator of the syndicated daily comic strip Zippy and author of two graphic memoirs, most recently Nobody's Fool, The Life and Time of Schlitzy the Pinhead. And that's what brings us here today. In studio with me right now is Wolf Krakowski, a Yiddish singer, creator of the genre of Yiddish world blues. His CDs are on Sadiq Records. But as a teen, he worked as a Midway employee, and he spent a summer with the protagonist of Bill's book uh, and the protagonist in absentia of the conversation we're going to have right now. But Bill, I'm going to begin with you. Uh, When people look at your book, uh, Nobody's Fool, if they know your work already, they think this is going to be some kind of extension, maybe, uh, of the Zippy story. Instead, it's the genesis of the the Zippy story about a real-life circus or sideshow performer. Tell us about Schlitzy. Well, uh, Schlitzy uh, first appeared to me when I saw the movie Freaks. As an art student, I was 19 years old. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people have seen the film. It's become a cult classic over the years. Schlitzie has a couple of scenes in the film. He's not really a character per se, but he really kind of glows on the screen. And when I saw it at the age of 19, I felt like I had just taken acid or something. It was such a a mind-altering moment for me. But at the time, I was not a cartoonist. I had no way to process this creatively. I had to wait 50 years (laughs) To uh, after I, after I'd created Zippy, Zippy is inspired was inspired directly by Schlitzy. Of course, all I had to go on was that few minutes in the movie and one picture postcard I had of Schlitzy. So I created an entirely other person, and this book is my attempt to find the real Schlitzy and just lay his life out as much as I could with lots of deep research. And a wonderful couple of interviews with Wolf, who is here today. 
So, yes. So we should say, so Schlitzie was a real-life circus performer who performed for many, many decades, lived to the age of 70, spent most of those 70 years in these kinds of traveling shows, traveled uh, in America more and Canada uh, more than you or I or everybody you know put together. I mean, the the itineraries uh, for these shows are absolutely mind-boggling. But behind all that, you have somebody who's born— with some pretty significant damage. Bill, we should, before we go to Wolf, say that although your book actually begins a little bit closer to the present, as you begin to narrate this story, it begins with this tremendous wrenching moment where these parents persuade themselves that the right thing to do is to to release this child that they've begun to raise and and have him exhibited. Right. Um as far as I can tell, Schlissi was sold to a sideshow, the Coney Island Dreamland Sideshow, around 1909. Um, he wasn't exhibited much as a child, but he, he was at that point taken from his family. And when I say taken, I mean literally sold. Um, a man named Stephen Mills, the manager of the Dreamland Sideshow in Coney Island, canvassed the Bronx neighborhood where Schlitzie lived, which people, the, the sideshow managers did regularly, asking, are there any strange people living in the neighborhood? Anybody with three legs? Any bearded ladies? Anybody with a lot of tattoos? And someone said, well, on that building, there's a funny-looking little guy. Uh, you might want to check him out. So in my book, I'm a, I take the fly-on-the-wall kind of approach. There's no direct evidence of exactly what happened, but I presume... Uh, the family was offered some money. If Schlitzi had remained with his family, he would have had a kind of, I think, a much less uh, nice life. He would have been probably literally kept away from the world as a kind of a mark of shame in the family, possibly. He would have probably not interacted much with other people. Um, instead, he was brought into the circus sideshow and developed a, a, a kind of surrogate family with all the other sideshow freaks who treated him as a kind of um, adopted child. So he actually had a pretty decent life. Right. So, um, Wolf, by the time you met him, it's uh, what year? 1965. So 65. So um, he's been by this time for decades and decades touring around. He's lived a kind of almost zealot-like existence where his paths cross with Jackie Cooper and the Beach Boys and you know, Tom Mix, <laughs> you know, all kinds of uh, really famous people. And so you're what, what, what are you doing? You're a very young guy at that point working the bumper car concession on the Midway? Sure, I'm living in Toronto with my parents. I'm a you know, teenager going to high school, and in uh, in my day, there in the '50s and the '60s, yeah, you have the Canadian National Ac- Exhibition, which is a huge, huge fair covering acres of ground with a lot of permanent installations and a you know large roller coaster and like that. So a working class kid could get a job there, and uh, I got a job selling balloons for Half Beat Herald, and uh, I wasn't doing too well, so. Uh, I, you know, took my little change apron and gave it to a Mrs. Halfbeat, and I went looking for greener pastures, which I found by uh, just uh, just kind of following the crowd, and I found a uh, a, a permanent structure, and uh, stuck my head in there, looked in the back, and there was like an office for the midway. Saw a guy there in a monkey suit with the name of McDonald written on it. He had grease on his forehead, was sweating. I said, "Can I work here?" <laughs> he said. He looked me over. 
all he demanded was a social security number, which I had, and um, he showed me where to punch the clock. And he put me to work on the bumper cars. And so um, I'm going to swing back to Wolf in just a second, Bill. I, I guess maybe one thing we should say before we talk about, about Schlitz's emotional uh, state in 1965 is he's been exhibited for decades, usually with some incredibly false story about him. First of all, frequently identified as female on stage for reasons that are not that easy to fathom, and usually as some kind of freak from some far-flung place, right, from Peru from the Amazon, and that people are supposed to gape at the pure strangeness of him. Yes. Schlitzy didn't do much in terms of an act. He was more of an exhibited sideshow freak. So he stood next to what they call the talker. The sideshow term is not barker, but talker. Mm -hmm. And the talker was a guy next to him who would spin this yarn of impossible exotic strangeness. Schlitzy the penhead, with a brain the size of a golf ball, survives on nothing but swamp grass, and he would go on and on and on. And Schlitzy would just sort of sit there looking sweet, you know? I mean, <laughs> I've, I've seen photographs. Schlitzy was probably only vaguely aware of what was being said about him. He did a couple of quick magic tricks, one of which was to pick a card, any card, and he'd always guess the ten of spades. Of course, all the cards in his deck were ten of spades. Mm -hmm. So he was he was not too adept at things like that. But you have to remember, Schlitzy had the cognitive abilities of about a four-year-old child, okay? Mm -hmm. But think of four-year-old children that you've in interacted with in your life. There's a lot going on in a four-year-old child. And, and through Wolf, I learned things about him, that he had a fairly rich emotional life. He was he needed and craved affection and attention. He had likes and dislikes. He had his moods. He was much more than just an exhibited sideshow pinhead. He was a real person. Although, from what we can discern, the people who went to this kind of a show were probably not there to look respectfully uh, at the no. various people and all the wonderful ways in which they might differ from the understood norm of humanity, right? They were, they were right. there in a disrespectful mood, usually. Right. Well, people ask me today sometimes, am I aware that the sideshow still exists in any form? And I say, yes, it's called Jerry Springer. <laughs> it's, it's called reality TV. And why do we watch those shows? To feel better about ourselves. At least I'm not like that. At least I didn't have 10 botched facial surgery jobs. So, yes, people went to the sideshow primarily at first because of just the exotic appeal, just see something weird. When they got in there, I think they probably had a range of emotion. The primary one I would imagine being... I'm not doing that great. I have a crappy job. I live in the Bronx, whatever. But I'm not like that. I have two legs, not three. I'm able to speak normally. I'm not a pinhead, etc. cetera. Um, then at the darker end of the spectrum were the people who came to the sideshow to torment the freaks. And freaks like Schlitzy were prime targets for torment. I talked to Schlitzy's last sideshow manager, a man named Ward Hall, who's still alive, he managed Schlitzy towards the end of Schlitzy's career, and I asked him what happened when Schlitzy was tormented, which I assumed happened. And he said, oh, yes, usually teenage boys. And I said, well, what did they do? He said, well, at the worst, they would throw lit cigarettes or matches at Schlitzy. I tried to picture that, and I said, well, what did Schlitzy do? He said he got down on all fours. He walked to the edge of the stage, 
stared intently at his tormentors, and said his catchphrase over and over again, which was, you see, you see, you see, until they literally, and here I'm doing air quotes, freaked out mm-hmm. and left. So, Wolf, you actually saw a little bit of this, some of the torment and some of how Schlitzie handled it. I did. Uh, I can uh, see those teenage you know, boys in my mind you know, to this day, and uh, there was uh, you know, plenty of that. People, of course, are not always uh, so kind to one another. There was you know, jeering and you know, catcalls and you know, mockery and Schlitzie would, uh, he would, you know, revert uh, and, and he would, beca- it would become very uh, primal and, you know, he'd, you know, grit his teeth and stare at those people in a, you know, menacing way. But when, uh, offstage, when you encountered him, it was a very different experience, right? You discovered, well, I mean, if he was, in fact, having the, the intelligence and mental capacity of a four-year-old child, there was sort of a four-year-old child there needing love and affection, too. Yes. Like all children, as Bill said, he craved tenderness and affection. And if he uh, found an opening, so to speak, you know, he would take it. And in my case, I remember, uh, you know, rela- you know, just relaxing in the hotel after uh, a day's work and, you know, some you know, funky easy chair, and he would crawl onto my lap. Mm-hmm. You know, he would uh, get a lot out of that. It was a very emotional experience he, for him. He was, in addition to his his cranial disfigurement, very small too, right? Yeah, he was under five feet, yeah. uh, definitely. Um, he was a little a little yeah. over four feet, actually. Yeah. 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 So, uh, you know, one of the messages of this book, Nobody's Fool, and it's, it's kind of similar to the message of the movie Freaks, is that there is this incredible confraternity of these people who travel together. Uh, They aren't like everybody else, and they aren't very much like each other in a lot of ways, too. I mean, everybody's got a kind of different difference, yet they kind of bond together, Bill. I mean, that's, first of all, what you first saw uh, in the movie Freaks, and and I think it sort of fits with Schlitzie's life, too. Yes. uh, In the movie, there's a narrator that comes in at the beginning and at the end, and he talks about the Freaks as a almost like a family. You, uh, you, risk, you, you risk your life if you turn on them because if you turn on one, you turn on them all. That's a phrase out of the movie. And in Schlitzie's case, he was doubly protected. The sideshow freaks are divided into two basic categories. One are the unusually talented. And that would just be people like flame eaters, uh, sword swallowers, people with tattoos, people who would pound nails into their head, the holes, of course, already being Mm -hmm. pre-drilled, so that they had special talents. Otherwise, they were were born normally. Then there were the people who were either physically or in some some mental condition handicapped, strangely uh, uh, formed, either just their anatomy or, in Schlitz's case, the way he was born with microcephaly. So the sideshow performers felt like a family, but they doubly felt protective and parental towards those members with physical or mental uh, handicaps, especially mental handicaps. Schlitzie was very cared for almost all his career. He had about five managers who, as far as I can tell from all my research, were benign towards him. You have to remember, he was one of the top 10 sideshow earners in the country for about 40 years. So he was, he was a paycheck. 
wherever he went, there was the manager would always hire either a, a fellow performer or just somebody else to be his caretaker, his caregiver. Um, when Wolf knew him, the guy's name that was taken care of, let's see, was a guy named Frenchy, who that was his job. He used to be a sword swallower, but for the three months that he was working in the particular circus that summer, he was Schlitzie's caretaker. You mentioned earlier the, that Schlitzie was billed as a female, mm -hmm. and you wondered why. Well, I asked Ward Hall, Schlitzie's last manager, why. And after giving me all kinds of spiels about wild Australian children, and I have to, I had to listen to his <laughs> long circus sideshow spiel, he finally told me, it's freakier if they're female. It's it's more exotic and forbidden, and um, it causes people to shudder even more, or at least it did then. You know, it's a it's a kind of sexist thing, of course, but that's what it was. If Schlitzie was billed as a female, they got more attraction. More people came into the sideshow. Okay, what we're going to do now is we're going to take a break. When we come back, Wolf will tell you a story about that sword swallower. Uh, we'll take a quick break. Uh, we'll be back with more. Say it's only a paper moon Sailing over a cardboard sea But it wouldn't be make-believe If you believed in me Yes, it's only a canvas sky and we are back. Uh, we are talking uh, to two people connected to the book Nobody's Fool, The Life and Times of Schlitzie the Pinhead. Uh, joining us uh, in studio is Wolf Krakowski, who knew Schlitzie, the sideshow performer uh, who uh, is chronicled in, in this book. I don't know if I've ever said in the course of the show so far, the book is done as a graphic biography. In other words, it's uh, Bill Griffith's recreation, not only in words, but in pictures uh, of what he can glean about the life of uh, Schlitzie. Uh, Bill Griffith is uh, joining us via some kind of connection from the wonderful Argo Studios, and he is the creator of the syndicated daily comic strip Zippy, an author of two graphic memoirs, most re recently Nobody's Fool, as we're talking about. So, uh, Wolf, just because uh, Bill alluded to it, uh, heading into the previous break. Yeah, in the three months that you were spending with this circus and with these performers and with Schlitzie, uh, he did have this kind of assigned guardian or caretaker, uh, Frenchie, who had been and I guess would continue to be a sword swallower. And I, I don't know. I know. I don't know what I thought sword swallowers actually did, but uh, I guess you got to see close up what they did. In the mornings, uh, we would all leave the hotel together. Frenchie had a car and uh, the first ritual was stopping at one of uh, Canada's, Ontario's government-run liquor stores. Frenchie would pick up his bottle. Then we would drive on to the fairgrounds. This one morning, we passed a pawn shop, and, and the Frenchie pulled up, and he said, I have to stay in, in practice. And I didn't, wasn't quite sure uh, you know, what he meant, but Schlitzie and I lingered in the back seat till the song finished playing, then I uh, took Schlitzie in hand and we walked into the pawn shop where Frenchie was cleaning a long blade with uh, some disinfectant liquid and proceeded proceeded to drop that sword into his mouth and down into his intestines, I guess. So the, two, there were two, the pawn shop was operated by two elderly women. Almost simultaneously, uh, as uh, Frenchie was uh, swallowing that sword, I walked in with Schlitzie. And you picture me 
age 18, 1965, I had rather long hair, and I have Schlitzie, you know, by my side. <laughs> and she just swallowed a sword. These two, these two women, uh, the blood just drained from their faces. Uh, well, you so know, this is what I meant when I said Wolf made Schlitzie come alive for me. Right. So, you know, I mean, and, and Wolf is pointing, uh, Bill, to some of the possible responses to all this. And one of the things that you create, recreate in the book is on the set of the movie Freaks, uh, and not just on the set, but uh, on the studio lot. So all of these people, I mean, I don't know if, how clear we've been about the fact that Todd Browning insisted on casting for this movie about uh, a, a kind of doomed uh, romance uh, in the circus world. He insisted on casting real sideshow performers and in that you know when they ate in the commissary or whatever uh, it was called at that point on the studio the people who were just you know there working in the movie business a lot of them couldn't handle it any better than those two elderly women in the pawn shop right especially f scott fitzgerald yeah who was in his final days at mgm uh, drinking heavily um, one day he went to the commissary for lunch and who should sit next to him but uh Daisy and Violet uh, Hilton, the Siamese twins. In other words, they were joined at the hip. Um, they were identical, and they were joined at the hip, and they were just sitting there having their lunch. Uh, he took one look at them. He threw up, <laughs> it's reported, and he demanded that they never be allowed to eat in the same room with him or any other respectable human being. This is not a great moment for F. Scott Fitzgerald, needless to say. And the following day, uh, all the sideshow freaks that were offensive to him had to eat outside at a picnic table. And I depict this in the book. There are photographs of it. Um, Schlitzie was ushered around the set as a kind of mascot. He showed up for every day, even though he was only in a few scenes. He was a favorite of Todd Browning. Todd Browning knew him. Todd Browning himself was a sideshow performer before he started directing films. He was a contortionist. He was a clown. He had a very bizarre act where he'd, in front of a bunch of people, dig a six-inch deep hole, like a coffin-shaped hole. He would lie down in it, Someone would cover him up with six inches of dirt, stick a tube into his mouth, and feed him malted milk balls and see how long he could stay under the dirt. This was entertainment for people. You have to remember. And this they week, didn't have the internet. Right. <laughs> the, answer was, have, the answer was like 48 hours, right? And, sometimes yeah. 48 to 72 hours. Yeah, no, so, I, so literally people would pay a dime to come in and just watch a, a straw sticking out of some dirt <laughs> with little malted milk balls being <laughs> given to him. Um, so that was one of his acts, yeah. <laughs> yeah so, was, but he actually he actually knew Schlitzie before the movies. So that's that's why Schlitzie was in the film. When I said before Schlitz, Schlitzie was like Zelig, meeting all these luminaries of the day. I'd forgotten about F. Scott Fitzgerald. Also, I think Ed Sullivan uh, kind of emceed the last show we ever did. Schlitzie's last performance was MC was emceed introduced by Ed Sullivan in an indoor arena in Los Angeles. Uh, I think it was probably 1968, maybe. Any, yeah. Well, you knew before we bring out Schlitzie. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. It, it's, so, I mean, I, I want to just talk a little bit about the movie, too. And what we'll do right now is uh, play uh, a clip from the movie. This is Schlitzie's big scene in the movie Freaks. Oh, Schlitzie, what a pretty dress. Oh, how beautiful you look tonight. You're just a man's woman. You know what I mean? Huh? You. If you're a good girl, when I get to Paris, I'm going to buy you a big hat. 
with a long, beautiful feather on it. Oh, hello, Elvira. Hello, Jenny Lee. Look. Hasn't Slitha got a beautiful dress? Isn't that pretty? When I get to Paris, I'm going to buy her a big hat with a long feather on it. And if you're a good girl, when I get to Paris, I'm going to buy you a hat with a bigger feather on it. Why, Slitsy, what's the matter? Oh, I'm sorry, Slitsy. It's all fine. It's you and you. I was saying something on the All right, so that's the voice of Schlitzie that you hear uh, objecting to the notion that Froso the clown might be getting an even better hat for some other once again, sort of so-called pinhead performers uh, in, in the circus. So one of the questions that kind of runs through Bill's book, uh, Wolf, is what Schlitzie could say and, and how intelligible it would be. Bill uh, recreates him saying he's got catchphrases like boffo uh, or is he single? And so uh, what was Schlitzie's speech like during the time that you knew Schlitzie? Uh, to me, the only thing I, I can remember, and, you know, I'm looking, I'm going back 50 years mm-hmm. more um, he would say, you see, you see. Mm-hmm. This I remember very well. This was his uh, you know, catchphrase for just to get your attention or do you, do you hear what I hear? Do you see what I see? Mm-hmm. And he especially did this when we were listening to, you know, to the radio mm-hmm. in the car. And he, he would enjoy music. He would, he would groove physically, rock a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and you see, you see. And he, and he, he looked into my eyes and... Uh, you know, trying to make uh, that connection. Can I make a quick quote from the book, apropos of of Wolf? This is on page 229 of the book, when I'm interviewing Wolf and I'm illustrating more or less what he tells me. So this is Wolf speaking to me. Schlitzie seemed seemed to be blissed out to me. If you look into his eyes, whatever consciousness he embodied was wide open. There was no good or bad, legal or illegal— there was just demented glee. <laughs> so, you know, um, Bill, all through your career, that part of your career, which has involved Zippy the Pinhead, which is most of it, um, although you've always been doing other stuff as well. So Zippy, uh, particularly when Zippy starts appearing in people's daily newspapers alongside Peanuts and stuff like that, there's some people who've reacted negatively to Zippy and said, well, this is he's using a microcephalic person as some kind of comic foil. And it seems to me that this book about a real... Uh, a real protagonist uh, who who was exactly that is kind of an answer to that. Maybe you can just sort of say how you connect the the book that you've written about this real life uh, so-called pinhead performing in sideshows to the character that you created. Yes, since Zippy was originally inspired by seeing Schlitzie in the movie Freaks, uh, first, like I said, at the age of 19, and then, of course, subsequent viewings, I thought it was time for me to dig a little deeper and talk about who Schlitzie was as a way of informing who Zippy is. Zippy, when I first started doing the strip, what I got from Schlitzie was that Schlitzie was living in a kind of alternative space or universe to everybody else, that he was in his own little world, and that he was seeing through seeing things through very specific other eyes. Uh, and I, I took that a little further, and I decided to make Zippy be... Um, just kind of a loose cannon, say anything, do anything, 
one sentence had nothing to do with the previous sentence or the next sentence. And that went on for about four or five years in the early 70s until one day I was having a conversation with Art Spiegelman, cartoonist Art Spiegelman, and he told me, you know, Bill, I kind of like Zippy. It's a great idea, but it's a little bit like being stuck in an elevator with a crazy person. (laughs) You're waiting for your floor to come up (laughs) so you can get out. And I laughed, and then I went home that night, and I said, oh, my God, I have to do something to change this character. And that's when Zippy became more of a vehicle for satire, because then I invented the Griffey character, which is Zippy's foil, Mm -hmm. and very much the opposite, of course, being my alter ego. So there's a long evolution of who Zippy is, but it all begins with Schlitzie. And this was a book that was waiting, percolating on the back burner for 40 or 50 years until I finally did it. You know, Wolf, whatever era we live in, we live in an era where there's some other group of people who are marginalized, uh, who are made fun of, who are objects of contempt. And this can take all kinds of forms. I mean, I think we're living in one of these eras right now where there are people regarding uh, people who are looking at immigrants from other countries and treating them, and unfortunately one of them occupies the White House right now, treating them and talking about them as though they were freaks, as though they were these people who really didn't have the same human status as the rest of us. And and it seems like, you know, particularly as a young guy going to a sideshow, hanging around with the people that, you know, might make F. Scott Fitzgerald throw up, but you were seeing as human beings. I don't know. There's some way in which that's a lesson that probably stretches into a good part of your life. I come from a family of survivors of the Holocaust. My parents ran away from Poland into Russia, where they experienced, among other things, the torments of actual slavery under Stalin. My father became a combat soldier after they were were freed, and uh, they had basically, you know, eight, nine years of pure hell. And uh, I come into the picture uh, a couple of years after the war ends, and I'm born in an Austrian refugee camp. So as my family, you know, is is surviving uh, all this, uh, first in Sweden and then in Canada, everybody has PTSD, and worse, there were no ways to test us or to treat us, and you know, and uh, add to this poverty. The bottom uh, uh, of the ladder, uh, my father made 50 bucks a week, and it was seasonal and it was piecework. However, during all this, my parents, for all the, you know, the hits they took, um, they retained humanity. My mother always spoke of people she was able to help. And a guiding Jewish principle of Rachmunis compassion, mm-hmm. which... I had an opportunity to participate in an act of compassion by giving Schlitzy the love and affection he so very much craved, lacked, and deserved. That's a pretty perfect place for us to land this conversation, which is good because they're essentially out of time. I do want to mention that on Saturday night of this week, uh, Bill Griffith will be at Real Artways uh, at 7.30, I believe. What are you going to do? Are you going to read, sign? You're just going to do like a, a book event of some kind, right? 
Uh, I'm going to do a slideshow about the book, mm-hmm. and then I'll do a signing after that. Yeah. All right. So uh, uh, if you've enjoyed this conversation and you want more of it and you want to see more and, and also meet Bill, uh, Real Art Ways on Saturday night. So thanks to Bill Griffith uh, for joining us today and to Wolf Krakowski, uh, particularly for that wonderful uh, little speech that you gave us at the end, a very perfect way to end this conversation. But we've got another conversation coming about another way the sideshow gave a group of incredibly endangered human beings a chance at life. Oh, Lydia, oh, Lydia, say, have you met Lydia? Lydia, the tattooed lady. She has eyes that folks adore so, and a torso even more so. Lydia, oh, Lydia, that encyclopedia. Oh, Lydia, the queen of tattoo. On her back is the Battle of Waterloo. Beside it, the wreck of the Hesperus, too, and proudly above waves the red, white, and blue. So we've been talking so far about the American sideshow in its conventional sense with its conventional use, but maybe trying to get you to see a little bit more of the humanity of at least one of the performers there. Um, Now we're going to talk about a use of the American sideshow that I think most people are unaware of, and it really departs significantly and in a very good direction from from the from the use of the American sideshow we've been talking about so far. Joining us is Claire Prentice, award-winning freelance journalist, editor, and writer. She's the author of two nonfiction books, most recently and most relevantly, Miracle at Coney Island, How a Sideshow Doctor Saved Thousands of Babies and Transformed American Medicine. Claire Prentice, welcome to our conversation. Thank you. It's a great privilege to be here. So uh, maybe the place to start is to simply establish the fact that circa 1900 and really in the decades to follow for a while, there kind of was no plan for premature babies. I mean, right, there was no real medical procedure. The kinds of units that exist now in hospitals certainly didn't exist. And so so what did happen when you had a very early baby who weighed maybe two pounds? Okay, so yeah, in around 1900 and well into the the 1930s and 40s, a baby born prematurely was basically regarded by mainstream medicine as a weakling, and they were left to die or survive, more likely die. So nothing was really done to help them. If you had money, um, you would have had a doctor make visits, but there was no real understanding of what those babies needed and no attempt to do much to prolong their lives. So it was this idea of survival of the fittest. And this sets the scene for Martin Cooney, who had come to America from Europe. In in, uh, Europe, he had seen an exhibition of incubators. Really, France led the way, and Germany was also making great strides. Uh, Incubators had been developed there, and they were beginning to be used in mainstream medicine to save babies. There were hospitals that were equipped with incubators. But in America, early 20th century, there was basically nothing. There were no premature baby units. There were not incubators being used in hospitals. Uh, So then Martin Cooney comes along. He is by 1903 when he opens an exhibit, the infant incubator exhibit at Coney Island in New York. Um, He brings over these incubators from France at great expense, state-of-the-art equipment, and he opens incubators. He Visitors would pay 25 cents. They would come to the exhibit, 
On a wall outside, there was a sign that read infant incubators with living infants. Um, another read, all the world loves a baby. And you would come inside and you would see something that really looked like a hospital room. It was a small, spotlessly clean room with nurses in starched white uniforms and doctors in white coats. And then around the walls were these incubators, which were steel and glass. They stood around five foot tall and inside were tiny, tiny babies who were literally fighting for life. So maybe we could say a little bit more about uh, uh, what these incubators were like. You have to keep the uh, the infant warm and you have to have a supply of fresh and I guess kind of ideally clean air. How was that accomplished? That's right. So basically air was brought in through a pipe but it was then taken through um, cotton wool that was filtering out any impurities. So the idea was that you were providing an environment that was free from germs and dirt. The air was as clean as it could be. It was filtered. And then the babies basically lay on a mesh bed above a source of heat. There was basically hot water coming into a little tank underneath them, and that was keeping them warm. From that point of view, for centuries, people had tried to keep babies warm using various methods, hot water bottles. Um, So it was a more sophisticated version of that, coupled, of course, with the very best nursing care that they could get. So Cooney brought a terrific nurse by the name of Louise Recht with him from France. She had worked in one of the uh, hospitals in Paris that did actually have incubators for babies. And she basically, with him, ran the operation. They had a couple of doctors would come in, they would work back-to-back shifts, come in and check the babies over. And the nurses then got on with the business of caring for the babies. So the babies all got breast milk. They had a a group of wet nurses who lived on site who would feed them. He emphasised how important it was that everybody washed their hands, that it was a very clean environment. Um, He had a cook who provided meals for the wet nurses. They got very nutritious food. And if he caught them eating a hot dog, smoking a cigarette, drinking a beer or a soda, then they would be fired. He didn't want them working for him anymore. So it was really a very professional operation, just somewhat incongruously sitting in the sideshow, surrounded by sword swallowers, bearded ladies, next to the roller coaster, anything else that you would have seen at Coney Island in the first half of the 20th century. Right. This is the thing that's the hardest, uh, I think, for us to wrap our minds around right now. Everything you've described uh, until the last sentence is probably about as ideal as things could get for a prematurely born infant, uh, circa 1910, 1920, 1930, except that they're also being put on display for spectators. And there perhaps were a little bit, little, a few elements of showmanship. For example, I believe in some cases, the infants were actually dressed in even slightly larger clothing than what would fit them to exaggerate their smallness. That's right, yeah. And I think this is one of the things that makes Martin Cooney just so interesting. He's a really complicated character. Who, So yeah, they had, he prided himself on running this cutting-edge attraction, state-of-the-art facility. He always wanted to be taken seriously. He wanted to be accepted by mainstream medicine. It irked him when he displayed at World's Fairs that he couldn't be in the science tent. He was always on on the midway. And yet at the same time, he wasn't above adopting showman's tactics if they were good for business. So his nurse 
would, with a great flourish, slip off her diamond ring of her finger and then slip it over one of the baby's wrists just to show how tiny it was. Uh, the babies would be dressed in clothes, as you say, a couple of sizes too big, just to emphasise how small they were. Um, so, yeah, he's definitely a showman, undoubtedly. But at the same time, he really cares for these babies. You know, he earns a huge amount of money from them, but he also ploughs a very large portion of his profits back into buying more equipment, hiring more staff. So he's, you know, we can't see him purely as an opportunist who's exploiting the vulnerable. He is doing huge amounts of good and he's attracting huge crowds, but he's then using that money to pay for the baby's care. So that around 1903, it's costing $15 a day to care for one baby, which is around $450 today. And he doesn't charge the parents a penny. You know, he could have charged them. He didn't charge them anything. He's covering all of his costs by charging his visitors 25 cents each to come in. So there's just no denying. I mean, here's this incredible paradox. There's just no denying that there's a cohort of people who wound up alive uh, who would have died because there was no other treatment available for them, let alone a free treatment, a treatment for which they, these babies would not be charged. So that's one side of the paradox. The other, par- the other side is that it's, you know, in this environment that we think of as slightly debased and debasing. I mean, there are barkers uh, doing that thing where they're yelling at people telling them to come in. I believe the young Cary Grant, uh, then Archie Leach, is one of those barkers, at least for a while. That's right, yes. Yeah. So there's a, there's a barker outside, and this is one of the things that there were various attempts to close Cooney down over the years, um, most often by the New York Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children. And yeah, they spoke about just how awful it was, the idea that you'd have this carnival barker outside drumming up crowds and interest, and it, you know, it just seemed so tasteless and awful. And there's actually this, this spiel that the barker had was, come this way, ladies and gentlemen, see the tiniest little bits of humanity in the world, warmed, nourished and fed, given a good fair start to become strong and able-bodied citizens. Maybe the future president is inside. Maybe there's another J. Pierpont Morgan who had been born prematurely, breathing the pure tar-scented air, all done by the baby incubator. First appearance since the exposition at Buffalo. Step right in and watch the babies grow well and strong before your eyes. So, you know, you could The idea of that does jar with us now. It doesn't seem appropriate, but we have to try and put ourselves back there in 1903. You know, Cooney, over the course of his career, and he was fighting for these babies for about half a century, he took in, he reckoned, about 8,000, and of them, he estimated he saved 6,500. Now, we can't completely verify that. There wasn't records that there would be today, but he definitely saved thousands of babies, and those Thousands of men and women had children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. So, you know, undoubtedly there are tens, hundreds of thousands, maybe more people walking around today who wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Cooney. And I think that that human legacy really speaks for itself. It's a remarkable achievement. Actually, let's let it speak for itself. There are still uh, survivors uh, who can tell their stories. This is from a, a StoryCorps conversation uh, between Lucille Horn, one of Martin Cooney's premature babies in 1920, and her daughter, Barbara. My father said I was so tiny, he had only in his hand. I think I was only about two pounds, and I couldn't live on my own. I was too weak to survive. 
So the hospital didn't have anything to no, offer? No, they didn't have any hope for me at all. It was just, you die because you didn't belong in the world. So when I was born, my father was looking for a blanket or a towel to wrap me up in, and somebody said, where are you going? He said, I'm taking it to the incubator in Coney Island. The doctor said, there's not a chance in hell that she'll live. He said, but she's alive now. He held a taxi cab and took me to Dr. Cooney's exhibit, and that's where I stayed for about six months. Do you know how your parents knew about the incubators? They saw the exhibit and their honeymoon. You had to pay to go in, and then the babies would be all lined up. How do you feel knowing that people paid to see you? It's strange, but as long as they saw me and I was alive, it was all right. <laughs> so we should also say, uh, Claire Prentice, that in, in uh, a time when uh, even the concept of eugenics was not a rejected or despised uh, idea, uh, Cooney was going in the other direction, right? There was no particular racial or ethnic disqualifier for, for any premature baby. That's right, yeah. So as we said, he provided care for all the babies free of charge and he took in babies of all races and social backgrounds, orphans, foundlings, you know, really anyone was welcome. And that was a remarkably progressive policy at the time. We should say also, this is a man without a an American medical license, to the best of my understanding. So That's right. Yeah. So yeah, this was one of the really fascinating discoveries I made when I was doing my research, is that he's always been credited as Dr. Martin Cooney. And I went back, just figured in the archives, doing my research, you know, let's find this qualification. I was intrigued as to where he'd got it from. He'd made all kinds of grand claims about his studies in Europe. And I discovered that he had never qualified as a doctor. So this hadn't been discovered before. He also was never licensed to work as a doctor in America. And I think basically what happened was that the newspapers had started calling him the incubator doctor. The title stuck and he didn't bother to correct anyone. It was good for business. He maybe felt by this point he'd kind of earned the right to call himself Dr. Cooney. And also within that fairground setting, within the, the sideshow in the amusement park, you know, people made all kinds of grand claims, called themselves a doctor this, professor that. And so maybe he justified it to himself in that way. Maybe he felt it, it wasn't a big deal. But it makes him such a fascinating character. You know, he was, in some ways, appears to have been doing something deceitful and fraudulent. He would have faced a very large fine and possibly a prison sentence if this had been revealed. But at the same time, while he wasn't a doctor, his facility was cutting edge. He employed a very highly skilled team of nurses and doctors. So people were undoubtedly getting the best possible care they could have got in all of America from Dr. Cooney, it just happened he was not a doctor himself. Let me ask you one more question, and this may be a, an impossible question to answer, but is it possible to see uh, any kind of uh, umbil umbilical cord stretching from Cooney to the American medical establishment? In other words, the American medical establishment has this kind of settled idea about premature babies. What do you do for them? Nothing. And that stays as accepted wisdom for decades and decades into the early 20th century. And then at some point, we did de develop neonatal medicine. Uh, was there, is there any indication that people looked at what he was doing, that the medical establishment said, wait a minute, there's this guy on Coney Island who's got this great success rate? Yeah, and it's, it's really interesting. He does start to collaborate with doctors, and some are happy to 
make this public. So there's Julius Hess in Chicago actually exhibits with him. The two of them have a facility together at the Chicago World's Fair. And that obviously brings a degree of respectability to Cooney, which he's delighted about. Other people come and study the baby, so they use Cooney's facility like a research lab. So there's Arnold Gassel. He filmed the babies and did research on them, but he didn't acknowledge it. He didn't thank Cooney publicly. He didn't give much detail away as to where his studies of the babies had been. So we have this really interesting situation where some people looking back on it, have accused Cooney of holding up the development of incubators and medicine for premature babies because by exhibiting them in the sideshow, he made them seem like a freak show, which contributed to the medical establishment being suspicious of this new technology. On the other hand, supporters of Cooney say he promoted the technology so that people accepted this idea that machines could save lives, which was still a fairly new concept at the time, certainly with regard to babies. Um, he became Premature Baby's greatest ally. You know, He spoke very often about the men and women, mostly men, who had been born prematurely and who had gone on to achieve great things. Well, Claire Prentice, we have to stop there, but what an amazing story, and it's kind of the perfect uh, cap uh, to put on the conversation we've had so far today. The book is Miracle at Coney Island, How a Sideshow Doctor Saved Thousands of Babies and Transformed American Medicine. Thank all of you for listening today, and we'll be back tomorrow with something new.